Jonah, the first question you've got to ask about Jonah is what is it? The genre, the nature of the book. Is this real history or is this a parable? Either one would be okay. The Bible has parables. There's nothing wrong with the Bible using a parable. Which is Jonah? And then how do we understand it? Why might we be inclined to think that Jonah is a parable and not real history? So the the extraordinary events, right? Jonah is rescued by a big fish. The entire city of Nineveh repents. The plant that grows overnight and is destroyed. Jonah is filled with these kind of remarkable events that we might be inclined to say um, are parable. And along with that are what could be read as kind of fanciful exaggerations. The way it describes the size of the city of Nineveh. I mean, the Bible may as well say ginormous. It says this many days walk. And it's like, well, how big is this city? The fact that when it talks about the repentance of Nineveh, it doesn't just say the people repent, does it? It says the animals repent. So there's this this big, grandiose, kind of fanciful language that might make us be inclined toward parable. And then a third reason we might think that it's parable is that there's no other prophet book anything like Jonah. All of the other prophet books are primarily about the prophet's message. Here's so-and-so the prophet, and here's what so-and-so the prophet said to the people. And you get like eight or ten verses on who so-and-so the prophet is, sometimes just one, and you get chapters on what the prophet's message is. How long is Jonah's message? It's one sentence. Forty days, and yet Nineveh will be destroyed. That is the message of Jonah. The entire rest of the book is about Jonah the prophet, not Jonah the message. And that is the only prophet book that is that way, especially among the minor prophets. The major prophets, just because they're longer, you get more about what the prophet himself does. But this one is very different. So if Jonah is a parable, then what does it mean? What is it saying? What's the lesson here? Well, if it's a parable then you treat that kind of the way you would treat an allegory. And so one thing represents something else. So what would Jonah represent? Well, Jonah would be disobedient Israel. And Jonah's preaching is Israel's responsibility to make God known to the nations, but Israel doesn't want to do that. They want salvation selfishly for themselves, so they refuse to evangelize the nations. And so Jonah flees, which is Israel refusing or failing to do its mission. Jonah is swallowed by the fish. What would that represent in Israel's history? The exile. They're cast out of the land and into darkness. And then Jonah prays for deliverance. Israel returns from exile. And then Jonah's unhappiness with Nineveh's repentance is Israel's unhappiness at the Gentiles being ushered in to the age of the gospel. Look, it's tied up with a neat little bow. 
Jonah is this fantastic parable about Israel's uh, lack of desire to see the nations come to faith in God. Obviously, there's a few problems with that view. Um, One of them is just the role of genre in these discussions, period. Genre only works one direction, never the other. And that is, once you know the genre, it helps you understand a book. It, It teaches us how to treat the language of the book and how to interpret the book. But that's only once you've already figured out what the correct genre is. You can't work the other way. I would like the book to mean this, and therefore, that's the, that must be the genre. It doesn't work in that direction. You have to use literary, grammatical reasons to determine the genre of something, not theological reasons. Theological's interpretation. What does the book mean? You can't say, because I want the book to mean this, I'm going to pigeonhole it in that genre. You have to look at the words, the text, the grammar, the structure. What genre is this? And then you are equipped to make theological interpretations. Another problem is, if this is a parable, this is the world's longest parable. And the world's most complex parable. Parables are short, they are simple, and critically, parables are accompanied by an explanation. The parable teller tells you what the parable means. This is long, complex, and you are totally on your own to figure out what this means if it's a parable. Um, Third, the the model doesn't work. If you take that that allegory, that parable that I described uh, uh, some interpreters using, it's not as clear-cut as I made it sound in the way I told it. Is the exile Israel's punishment or Israel's deliverance? Punished. Is the fish something that punished Jonah or delivered him? Delivered. That was Jonah's suicide mission, and the fish saved him and then was his deliverance. The parable, the interpretation of it doesn't work. Whenever you try to, and that's going to happen. It happens a lot in allegory in the Old Testament. Whenever somebody wants to take a book of the Bible and say this should be an allegory, this doesn't mean exactly what it says it means. They do it with Revelation, and you end up with locusts as Blackhawk helicopters. And you always end up having to twist stuff where somebody who knows anything would say, but wait, how could that be Iraq? If Iraq was... No! (laughs) Pay attention to the bigger picture, right? Another one is the book of Song of Songs, the people that try to allegorize that to being a relationship between Christ and his church. It just just makes you squirm. It's not helpful. (laughs) Not helpful. So whenever you're trying to force or impose a genre on a book, you're going to end up with a bunch of things that just don't fit. And that's what happens when you try to do the the parable view here. And the real reason that you would want to interpret Jonah as a parable is to reject the supernatural outright. I mean, think about the things I said at the beginning. Why would we even consider that Jonah is a parable? Well, because, I mean, look at how fantastic this story is. Somebody's delivered by a fish, and an entire city repents. Okay, and that's too much for God to do, or it's more than God usually does, or where's the problem here? There's only a problem if you want to reject the supernatural, if you want to reject how 
awesome and amazing God is. Um, So what ends up happening is you have to interpret Jonah uh, on its own terms. It is a historical account. It is not a parable, not because that's what we want it to be, but because that's what the text plainly tells us that it is. Jonah 1.1 is how the prophets begin. Uh, John, you have that open. Will you read 1.1? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Ty, saying, Have y'all heard a sentence like that before? Yeah, all the prophets. Because it says, here's a guy, a real historical guy, will tell you the lineage of this real historical guy, and the word of the Lord came to him. That's how prophets begin. That's, there's no uh, indication there that this is anything other than historical narrative. And in fact, 2 Kings 14 speaks to this Jonah, son of Amittai. Um, also, who's got, Renee, could you turn to Matthew 12, 38 through 40? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what's one of your problems with interpreting Jonah as a parable? Jesus didn't interpret Jonah as a parable. Jesus interpreted it as historical narrative. And so that's probably should be enough for us is the text says this is the kind of text I am I'm historical narrative and then Jesus who was the best Bible commentator who ever lived looked back and spoke of it as historical narrative then we probably should take that as historical narrative the problems in Jonah aren't really problems that's why we don't hide from problems we don't cover them up we don't pretend they're not there we look at them and we evaluate them and we say what am i not understanding about this so when jonah says the city mourned the people and its animals how do we deal with the repentance of the animals well we look at the way language was used in the ancient Near East. And what you find is that's generalized language of mourning. When you're trying to talk about an entire city being sad or an entire people being impacted, this was a a way that you would do that. This is not the only place in the history of literature where this has occurred. If you, you speak, we all speak in hyperbole about big situations. You know, a time of nationwide mourning after 9-11. Every single person? The nation? No. Right? There's no problem with that. That's, that's how humans speak. That's how we speak and have, have written for uh, as long as there's been writing. Nineveh. How could Nineveh be such a big city that it would take three days to uh, journey across it? Well, first of all, Genesis 10 does refer to Nineveh as the great city. And there are some pretty big cities out there. Uh, I went to Houston one time and am still, I think, maybe within the city limits as we speak. Um, but also, Nineveh, and we do this some today. If somebody said you walked across New York, what would that mean? You walked across New York City. What would that mean? Is that Manhattan? Is that Staten Island? Is that all of Long Island? What, what is that? Well, a lot of times we use names to refer to administrative districts, entire areas. That could be what's happening with Nineveh. Or it could be the time that it would take a prophet who's supposed to go preach to a city 
to go to a city and preach and walk a ways and preach some more and walk a ways and preach some more. It might take you three days to preach up that city. It could be any of those things, but that's not some major problem. And then what about the supernatural response to Jonah's preaching, though? The fact that this prophet comes in and says, you're all going to die. I mean, we get this all the time. If you ever go to downtown Atlanta, there's somebody holding a sign telling you the end is nigh, but I don't see you falling on your face in repentance. Why in the world did this happen in Nineveh? Well, two things. One supernatural explanation, one explanation. The most important, of course, being the supernatural, which is when God makes people's hearts ready to receive his word, people respond to his word. Period. That is a supernatural miracle of God. We need no other explanation. We also do have, though, some natural explanations that help us see how God prepared their hearts for his word. Nineveh had gone through some really tough times just before Jonah. 756 and 759, they had back-to-back great plagues that that, uh, wiped out tens of thousands of people each. Hundreds of thousands of people each, perhaps. Um, They had a total eclipse of the sun right before Jonah comes on the scene. And in this ancient world, great plague, great plague, total eclipse, your ears might be perked up to somebody holding a sign saying the end is nigh, right? You might, your heart might be supernaturally prepared for this. And so there's not there that, uh, there are no problems here that would cause us to have to abandon the most reasonable interpretation of Jonah in favor of a parable because we're afraid the Bible might say something that isn't true or just because we don't want to believe the supernatural. Pausing there just for a moment, what should we take away from Nineveh's supernatural preparation for Jonah's preaching? Two great plagues, total eclipse, and then in comes the prophet. What do y'all think about the way God used disaster and calamity to prepare people's hearts for repentance? The sermon text this morning is John 9, the man born blind. Why was the man born blind? Well, there's lots of reasons, it turns out. We don't usually get to see the reasons, but in this man's life we did. But part of the reason this man was born blind was so that when Jesus healed him from his blindness, he would come to faith. This calamity and trial that's brought into his life from the day of his birth in part exists to supernaturally prepare his heart for Christ saying, do you believe? And the Pharisees, who were not blind from birth, who could always see. Jesus said the same thing to them. And they said, no thanks, we see just fine. It is big ways, small ways, individual lives, families, nations, that God will use calamity to prepare the heart for what else he's going to do. We absolutely can say generally that in every single case, I can't tell you how, but I can tell you that it is in every single case that this is what God is doing with that. And it's amazing to see him do it with an entire city. An entire city of pagans. Really anti-God. I mean, Nineveh is the Assyrian capital. Nineveh is not the Bible Belt. Where people are, you know, generally good and kind. Like Nineveh is the Assyrian capital. These are monstrously evil people whose hearts are made ready. All right, what's the message of Jonah? God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and what does Jonah do? He flees. Why does Jonah flee? That's really what this book is about. What the book of Jonah is about is why Jonah fled. Because if you understand why Jonah fled, then you can read the entire book 
seeing what God wants you to get out of it, which is this contrast of characters. God's character, Jonah's character. (laughs) God's character, the character of fallen man. Jonah and Israel have this nationalistic pride. They have this view that allows them to sit in judgment over God's word and God's purposes and decide for themselves which ones are acceptable and which ones are not. Now, the good thing, nobody thinks like that today, right? That's not an issue that anybody has. Right? This is how everyone thinks. That's why the book of Jonah is so important. This is how everyone thinks is I get to decide. Go back to whether Jonah is a parable or whether it's history. The person is deciding for themselves. They're the ultimate authority. Back to our apologetics class. It's either scripture is our ultimate authority and tells us what God says, and then we have to deal with it, or we're the ultimate authority. Scripture is a really helpful resource that we look at and say, these parts okay, these parts are on the wrong side of history. And that's that's the reality. And so that's the contrast here. They see Nineveh and Assyria as the dreaded enemy. They see Nineveh, and, and they're not historically wrong. Their problem is not that their analysis of the situation is factually incorrect. Their problem is that they stand in judgment over God. And they look at what God says and what God intends to do, and they say, no, that is not good. And God is gracious and compassionate and wants to forgive even the Ninevites. And Jonah and Israel say, nope, unacceptable. It's okay for you to bless me, but you're only allowed to bring calamity to them. You're not allowed to bring repentance and forgiveness uh, to them. And so this contrast of characters is going to be what what is highlighted in every section, every pericope of the rest of the book. So what's the effect of that point of view? Well, you run from God, okay, but what's the effect of running from God? What, what, what happens when you stand in judgment over God, therefore you do not like what God has done, you will not submit to what God is doing, you will not submit to what God tells you to do, you run, But then what's the result? This selfish apathy. What what happens when Jonah goes onto the ship? It's a delightful cruise and everybody has a good time? Right. And what does he do while his sin is affecting everybody else? He goes down, 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 down into the bottom of the ship and goes down, 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 down deeper into slumber. You all heard me teach. Jonah is one of the most intentionally poetic of the prophet books, but this language of Jonah going as far down away from God as a human being can go, regardless of the consequences of that behavior on the people around him. That selfish apathy is so self-perpetuating. So he sleeps during a violent storm. He becomes worse than the pagans. You have this fantastic contrast of characters where the character of God is not reflected in the prophet of God. He's asleep in the bowels of the ship. The character of God is reflected in the pagan sailors who say, call out to your God. (laughs) 
He could deliver us from this. And then when they find out Jonah's story and that God told him to go to Nineveh and Jonah decided to go down in the ship instead, they say, what have you done? What kind of idiot gets instructions from God and ignores them and does what he wants instead? That is crazy talk. And then when they throw him off the ship and the storm calms down, they worship. They worship. These pagans get it. And so Jonah uh, becomes worse than the pagans in every way. And in fact, at the end of the story in chapter 4, you, you get this highlighted that, you know, Jonah has, part of the reason that Jonah did not want mercy for the Ninevites was that Jonah had never experienced mercy in his life. I'm sure that if God had just shown him some mercy somewhere along the way, then he would have been able to be merciful with other people. But the problem is, God never showed Jonah any mercy. Jonah 3.1 is, to me, now this is a subjective claim, right? But Jonah 3.1 is the most gracious verse in the whole Bible, to my heart. Jonah 3.1 is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. It is the most gracious verse in the whole Bible. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He didn't just save him from his suicide mission to the bottom of the ocean, he gave him his word again. Go, preach to Nineveh. What does it tell us that even a chapter after that, Jonah still looks at the Ninevites and doesn't want mercy for any of them? That's that selfish apathy, that perpetuation of when you stand in judgment over God, you won't just disagree with what God does. You will hate what God does. And you will hate him for doing it. That's where this leads. Whereas Jonah 3.1 teaches us about the heart of God, which is God's wisdom about what is good, what glorifies him the most, exceeds our capacity of understanding. It was good to give Jonah the plant, and it was good to take it away. It was good to bring the Ninevites to repentance. And all these people represented by Jonah are looking at everything God does and saying, that's not good. That's not good. And that's the contrast of characters. Who God is compared with who the selfish human heart is. So when Jonah does finally go to Nineveh and preach, what's the result? <laughs> it's exactly the result Jonah feared. It's exactly what Jonah didn't want. And what's the, you know, the, the irony of that is that Jonah is right about God. I feared that you were compassionate and gracious. Jonah's right about who God is. His selfish apathy doesn't make him wrong about who God is. It makes him hate who God is because he is not God. And that is a really, really tough lesson for the human heart. The unbelieving heart cannot receive it. The believing heart has to receive it, if you're me, has to receive it about 47 times a week. 
uh, the, you know, y'all know the old joke about the couple that uh, that broke up for religious differences. He thought he was God, and she disagreed. <laughs> That's the human heart, right? I think I'm God. I don't say it that way because, I mean, come on, how tacky does that sound? But I stand in judgment over what God says and does and tells me to do all the time. And that'll come up again today in the sermon is this applying godly principles, abiding with Christ, walking in Christ's likeness means actually submitting our hearts to what God tells us to do. And what our hearts want to do is to look at every situation and say, all right, God, I know what you tell me. And I really am keeping that in mind as I do this thing my way that's going to work better and will eventually get what you think is the best outcome. I promise, God, you and I are looking for the same outcome. The difference is I know better than you do how to get it. And that is what our hearts say all the time. All the time. I know what I need better than you do. I know what will work better than you do. I know what is good better than you do. And that's not to say that when you look at the circumstances, humanly speaking, that you can't make a reasonable human case. The Assyrians murdered women and children. They practiced human sacrifice. They did every evil thing. You want to make a human case that God should just smote them and be done. And by the way, he will. He will eventually when they turn back on their repentance and they go back to their evil doing. God will bring judgment on them. But we say, no, no, no. The human case says this is what's best. And if God does anything other than that, I disagree with him. Okay, you're allowed to disagree with God. But are you saying God is wrong? Or are you saying, it's a, tr- it's a good thing to be able to say, I disagree with God. If your response to that is, and that's a problem with me, that I need God to work on. <laughs> we all disagree with God. We all disagree with God. And asking God, help me. Help me to see things as you see them. Help me to trust you even when I don't see them. Help me to do the thing I don't think is going to work. Help me. Help me. That is, that's the young blind man in today's story. But the Pharisees, the religious rulers, are we see things just fine. Therefore, you're the one that's out of step with God. Well, when you're saying that to God, hard to, hard to back up. I hear an interesting way people do it. Like now, like, with all the stuff that's happened this year, I'm very vocal. I don't like this. I don't like any of it. It's horrible. I really hate that this is what you did. Um, and then I'll talk to other people and they're like, the key didn't do it, that mistake. And so they get around the, like, they disagree with God, and so when it's something really bad, they're like, well, it wasn't God, it was Satan. Satan did that. They need to go reread the book of Job. <laughs> Even just the first three chapters. Satan has no power on this earth except that which God entertains. <laughs> I guess it's like a way of, like a way that they're, they can cope or something, I don't know. Uh, We're all sympathetic to what they're trying to cope with there. I don't want to make God the author of evil. It is a very hard thing to wrap your mind around. How is this God's will? God is powerful enough to stop it. 
He doesn't stop it. And he's not the author of evil. That is tough stuff to wrap your mind around. The problem is that approach of it's not God, it's Satan, doesn't solve any problems. It doesn't even solve the problem they're trying to solve. Is God not powerful enough to stop Satan? Well, of course he is. Well, then why didn't God stop Satan there? See, you didn't let him off the hook. You just moved it up a level. So you still have to deal with the real problem, which is God does stuff in his will that is utterly incomprehensible to us how this could ever be good or even just better than not doing it. I would settle for just better. Incomprehensible. The question is, what is our posture toward God? When I come across the incomprehensible things, I have to be Job in chapter 38. I put myself in the dust. I'm prostrate. This is miserable beyond my ability to endure it. But I, I can't even look up to accuse you of evil because you put me in my place. <laughs> right? If the moment I remember who you are and that I don't get to stand in judgment over you, I still don't have any answers. But I'm on, in the dust in a position of humility. Or am I Jonah? I knew this about you all along. I knew you were so full of mercy and compassion. It's everything that's wrong with you. you know, this isn't good, God. This isn't good. It's not good for you to have these Ninevites walking around, not destroyed. It's not good for us. It's a contrast in characters. The same mercy that God gives Jonah, chapter 2 and 3, is the mercy that Jonah holds in contempt whenever it's applied somewhere he doesn't want it to be applied. And we can feel that way about mercy, but we can also feel that way about judgment on the other side of the coin. We can feel that way about anything God chooses to say or do. So then, uh, chapter 4, the story of Nineveh is kind of over, and we get this object lesson of a plant. And the way that the plant is introduced is actually, once again, God being merciful to Jonah. Because Jonah's big beef is that only people who deserve mercy should get mercy. And God's response is always, you don't understand how mercy works. <laughs> and so you're complaining about the sweltering hot sun. Here's a giant plant. <laughs> and Jonah, I love Jonah's emotional power. He loves this plant. He's, he's loved this plant since he was a child. This plant is his nearest and dearest friend. It is his only companion in his sorrow. There is no love on earth deeper than the love which Jonah has for this plant. So what does God do? <laughs> he sends a worm and kills the plant. And Jonah doesn't love God. Jonah loves the plant because Jonah loves himself. Because Jonah is his own God. And so when good things come, of course you deserve them. Of course that was good. I liked it. It made me happy. And so God destroys it, takes it away in a night. And then Jonah, my favorite speech in all of the Bible, a plant was my only true friend. A plant was my reason for living. <laughs> God says, do you... Do well to be so angry. <laughs> yes, angry enough 
to die. This plant was all that mattered to me and you took it from me. And it's interesting that God's doing two things here. He's using Jonah to continue making the point to us of the blindness of that selfishness, the blindness of that uh, putting yourself in the position of God. And he's trying to teach Jonah, if you loved that plant one one trillionth as much as I love the people that I've made in my image, you might reconsider your view that mercy for Nineveh is bad. He said, you you feel this way over a plant that I made spring up yesterday. How do you want me to feel about a city with hundreds of thousands of souls that I made? And that's how the book ends. 